0: Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, January 9th, 2018, is a Petraeus-Hertog Lecture on Leadership. General David H. Petraeus interviews author Max Boot on his book, The Road Not Taken, Edward Lansdale and the American Tragedy in Vietnam. And now, enjoy the podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much. It is uh, wonderful to be back. Uh, It's particularly wonderful to be on stage with someone for whom I have such high regard and respect and admiration. Uh, And it is a special treat when someone for whom you have such regard writes about somebody uh, for whom you have such regard, and that is, of course, uh, Edward Lansdale, Uh, someone many of us studied over the years, uh, a somewhat tragic figure in certain respects, uh, in that he had great achievements in one arena and provided brilliant advice in another that was unfortunately largely disregarded. Um, Max is uh, everything uh, that that Louise said about him. Uh, He's truly a distinguished scholar, a brilliant thinker, a forthright observer, uh, and a lyrical writer. Uh, Again, someone I've had enormous regard for over the year whose thoughts, uh, advice, counsel I sought during commands in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the greater Middle East, and also as the director of the CIA, and still do now at uh, KKR. He's one of those rare individuals whose every essay I read with keen interest, noting that, of course, he's also one of those admirable individuals who is not one to leave something left unsaid. That that is a quality of particular virtue in contemporary times. Uh, So it's really a privilege, uh, and, and especially tonight to be the interviewer as opposed to the interviewee. Uh, this is the, a role reversal. The, it is the interrogator. This is your chance to get revenge for uh, all those tough questions it, I've asked you is. over the years. There will be no enhanced interrogation techniques. So, <laughs> as you know, I have long stood against them uh, for a variety of different reasons. And, um, you know, and thanks to all of you for being here tonight. Thankfully, the bomb cyclone deep freeze abated in time for everybody to come here without too many layers. Um Again, it's also truly a privilege to be on really an incomparable stage uh, here at the New York Historical Society, one of the top two, I would contend, centers of intellectual critical mass uh, in this extraordinary city, Uh, the other one being, of course, on the other side of the park, at great 92nd Street Y. Wonderful to do this in the presence of Roger Hertog and his his wife Susan, who have done so much to revive – reinvigorate uh, and sustain a wonderful organization that strives to preserve and help us not only record and remember the history, but to learn from it uh, as well. And again, that is hugely important at a time when some elements of society seem to want to consign the past uh, to the ash bins of history rather than being informed by what earlier generations experienced. So again, great to be back here. Uh, to Roger and to Susan, to the society's extraordinary President, Louise The only person I know with two PhDs from Stanford, not just one. Uh, And and then also, thanks, Pam, uh, for your leadership of this great organization. I also want to applaud all of you up front for all that you've done. Thank you. Well, Max, congratulations. Um, This has been a long time coming. We've been looking forward to this for really well over a year um, it is truly a monumental achievement. You know, Thank God for e-readers nowadays with books of that, that stature. It doubles as a barbell. Uh, it does, <laughs> as a paperweight and a barbell. Um, about Edward Lansdale, of course, but not just about him, but to a degree about the challenges of and the tragedy of Vietnam. And I would contend the challenges of contemporary situations that are similar in the minds of some, at least, again, to Vietnam. Uh, the Road Not Taken was selected as an Amazon Best Book of the Month before it was even available. Uh, and how fitting, I think, this is the evening of the day in which it was first actually uh, on sale in bookstores and, and online. Um, a lot of great reviews about this. Uh, the incomparable Phil Caputo described The Road Not Taken as a fascinating portrait of Ed- Edward Lansdale, a maverick in the mold of T.E. Lawrence, and much more than a biography. Uh, It begs comparison, he noted, with monumental narratives like Neil Sheehan's A Bright Shining Lie. I also added the best and brightest, giving us a compelling look back on the Vietnam tragedy, and importantly here, showing that it was by no means the inevitable result of forces beyond the control of our political and military leaders. And I will draw Max out on that to some degree. Uh, I wrote about it, actually, a brilliant biographer, a biography of the life and a riveting description of the times of Edward Lansdale, one of the most significant figures in the post-World War II Philippines and then in Vietnam, and by the way, whose son, Ed, uh, is here with his wife uh, and daughter, Uh, and welcome to each of you. We get to talk about Ed Lansdale with Ed Lansdale in attendance. We do, we do. (laughs) We do. And as I noted, The Road Not Taken not only tells Edward Lansdale's story with novelistic verve, it also situates it wonderfully in the context of his tumultuous experiences and does indeed offer lessons for the present day. So with that, Max, let's get started. How and when did you come to focus uh, on this keenly interesting individual? Well, first,
2: let me just say thank you very much for doing this event and volunteering to do it. I, I, I wanted to do this. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I'm hoping it was not in the spirit of revenge for all of our, all of our conversations
1: in the that's, past. That's to come. The zingers yes. are later.
2: <laughs> right. Well, that's a good question in terms of how I got interested. And I wrote about at Lansdale a little bit in my previous book, which was a history of guerrilla warfare down through mm-hmm. the ages. And it was really my editor, Bob Weil, amazing editor at Norton Live right who said, you know, you ought to make a whole book about Ed Lansdale. And initially, I was a little bit reluctant, because I said, I've done him, you know, what more is there to say? And he just had an intuition that there was a lot more to say. And he turned out to be dead right, because I was lucky enough to acquire a a vast trove of material that previous writers, and there have been a lot of writers about Ed Lansdale. I mean, he was this legendary covert operative who's been uh, written about by everybody from Graham Greene to the Ugly American to David Halberstam to Neil Sheehan. Everybody who's written about Vietnam has written about him. Entire biography by
1: Cecil
2: Curry. Cecil Curry in the 1980s. But none of those folks really had access to all of the documentation that I was able to get my hands on. And some of that was due to the generosity of the Lansdale family, who willingly shared with me the correspondence uh, between uh, their parents, between Ed Lansdale and his first wife, Helen. And then I was also lucky enough to meet the grandchildren of his second wife, Pat Kelly, who, you know, close your ears, uh, Lansdales, but Pat Kelly, who was, was also a longtime mistress before becoming his second wife after the death of, of Ed Lansdale's uh, mother. And they, sh- and they shared the correspondence that Pat and, and and Ed shared over the years. And I think I'm the first person to read both sets of correspondence after Ed Lansdale himself. And then, of course, there was also a vast amount of newly declassified information uh, which your former agency, the CIA, is very slow about releasing, but what that means is that a lot of this stuff is information that i 'm the first historian who 's had a chance to look at it and so for example, if you want to know how to win an election in a developing country there 's no better source than <laughs> course uh, never there 's there's, uh, no better source than the, uh, the top secret report that Ed Lansdale wrote to Alan Dulles explaining how he got Ramon Magsaysay elected president in 1953. And I'm one of the first historians who's had a chance to actually read that. So there's a lot of new information. I think it really gives the, the most complete, accurate, and in-depth picture of Ed Lansdale that we've ever had.
1: And it's a wonderful one. Thank you. And obviously, uh, your publisher-editor was correct. You found a little bit more there's to, a lot more to say, uh, yes. say than you said before. Yes. And he turned out, I might add,
2: he also, I think, turned out to be a very pivotal figure And it's not just the story of Ed Lionsdale, although it is the story of Ed Lansdale, but it's really using his life to tell the story of our involvement in Vietnam. And he turned out to be a wonderful... Character upon whom to hang that larger history because he was there in the beginning. He was there creating South Vietnam in 1954, and he was
1: there as everything was going south in the Tet Offensive in 1968. I really can't think of anyone else like him, actually, as as you mentioned that. There were other figures. Of course, Neil Sheehan wrote about one of those. Yeah, John Paul Van. But John Paul Van didn't start until the early 60s, as I recall. Yeah, no,
2: I mean, Uh, Lansdale was really there on the ground floor, and uh, Neil Sheehan called him, probably with a little bit of exaggeration, but called him basically the creator of the state of South Vietnam. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think there's a lot to that, and we'll get into that. Up front, two questions very broad up front, and then we'll actually go in and start back at the beginning with his upbringing and so forth. Just in a general sense, how do you describe him? Uh, when, When people say, tell me about Edward Lansdale in two or three sentences or less. He was a wonderfully engaging and eccentric character who had a
2: passion for American democracy, who loved psychological operations and sometimes engaging in dirty tricks. But above all, I think he had a passion for helping his Asian friends in the Philippines and in South Vietnam to try to achieve a measure of, of independence and autonomy and, and self-worth. And I think his ideas and his being has often been caricatured. But in fact, I think he was a much more complex person who was much more in tune with local societies than he has sometimes been made out to be by bureaucratic rivals and, and hostile
1: journalists. And a huge believer in good governance, as we would call it Absolutely. Today. And, 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 this is is a, and this
2: is such a core insight. It's significant. Yes, yeah. Right. And this is not a new insight for you, of course, because, I mean, you literally wrote the manual on counterinsurgency. But, I mean, of course, you have to remember... That in the early 1950s, a lot of these ideas were bold and fresh. And Lansdale was really one of the pioneers of counterinsurgency, and he really understood the basic truism that I think you acted upon in Iraq and elsewhere, which is that you know you can't defeat an insurgency just by killing insurgents. You have to outgovern the insurgents. And this is what Lansdale said time and again you know, the communists have an idea, and we can't bomb an idea into oblivion. We have to offer a better idea. Now, of course, when he said that to people like Robert McNamara and William Westmoreland and others, they thought he was an idiot. They didn't know what, he didn't yep. know what he was talking about because they didn't understand the mathematical precision yep. of American firepower. But in hindsight, it's pretty obvious that Lansdale understood a lot more than a lot of
1: his detractors did. You may recall actually jumping way forward, but during the surge, one of the – probably the second of the biggest big ideas, which you contributed to over time – was that you cannot kill or capture your way out of an industrial strength insurgency. Right. You have to reconcile with as many as you can, while certainly going after some of those. And he, it's it's interesting how that jumped off the pages at me. It, you know, you noted at some point in there that that he's a figure who was not mentioned in the counterinsurgency field manual. Uh, not that he was foreign to us or was unknown to us, but was not one as significant when we were doing the manual as I think he probably will be now as a result And I think part of, of that is
2: because he did not set down his ideas yes. in an influential yep. format the way T. Lawrence
1: did yes. or David Galula, yep.
2: or other pra- theorists did. Yep. He was more of a practitioner rather than yep. a writer. And not quite as good at self-promotion
1: as some of those as right. well. Um, Although he had his moments in self-promotion. <laughs> he, he did. There's a few of those, yes. Um, you, again, the title, The Road Not Taken, and we'll come back to this because this is a pretty big deal. Do you really believe as if his advice had been followed in the early years of Vietnam and and certainly prior to the 1963 coup in which President Diem was displaced and actually killed, uh, that the course of Vietnam might have been different?
2: Well, I think what one can say for, with confidence is that you know, things worked out pretty disastrously when Ed Lansdale's advice was disregarded yeah. because he said things like, for example, he told the Kennedy administration, please don't overthrow ZM. Yes, he's got his problems. Yes, we need to sideline his conspiratorial brother, no Nu. Yes, he has you know, gotten uh, in, a, in an unfortunate confrontation with the Buddhists. But Lansdale kept saying there's no better alternative. I know all the generals. They're not going to do a better job. And the Kennedy administration ignored him, went ahead sponsored the coup that overthrew and killed No Dinh Diem on November 1, 2, 1963, the very day that Lansdale was retiring uh, from from the Air Force. And the results were every bit as catastrophic as yeah. he had warned about, yeah. because uh, South Vietnam rapidly disintegrated. You had one military coup after another, and the situation became so dire that in 1965, Lyndon Johnson felt he had no choice but to send American combat troops into South Vietnam to rescue it. And, you know, That was the last thing that Ed Lansdale ever wanted to see. He never wanted to see half a million American troops thrashing around through the jungles with free fire zones and all the horrors that came with this massive military intervention. He always said that the Vietnamese had to defend themselves. We had to help them, but he wanted us to help them in a much more modest way as advisors on the sidelines, not taking the central role ourselves. And, you know, I think there is a chance that if the Lansdale philosophy had been followed, Uh, things could have worked out quite differently. And that's not just me saying that. That's people like Walt Rostow, who was Lyndon Johnson's national security advisor, later said that it was a tragedy that Lansdale's advice was disregarded. I mean, what I would say is I can't guarantee and and certainly, I mean, this is a counterfactual. You can't say, you know, if Lansdale's advice had been followed, the war would have been won. I mean, that's you you can't prove that. But I think one thing you can say for sure is uh, we would not have lost it in the catastrophic fashion that we did. You would not have lost... 58,000 Americans and millions of Vietnamese in this terrible tragedy uh, that unfolded in the mid-1960s. With such catastrophic
1: repercussions really at home as well as abroad. yes. Let's go back to the beginning then. Talk a bit about his upbringing, where he was born, went to school, goes to UCLA, doesn't graduate, of course. Uh, Does ROTC and so forth. Interesting background.
2: He was from a fairly modest background. He was certainly not to the manner born. He was not part of the... Uh, kind of the post-war elite that ran American foreign policy. He didn't go to Harvard. He didn't go to a white-shoe Wall Street law firm. He didn't work at a place like KKR, for example. Uh, He was from a much more modest uh, upbringing. His father was a was an automotive executive whose fortunes went up and down, and sometimes the family was doing well, and sometimes they weren't. But he spent most of he, – he grew up in Detroit and in Bronxville near here, but mainly in California, and he acquired this great California informality. He was became a general but always hated to wear a necktie and always wanted people to kick back and to get rid of stuffy protocols. So in some ways, he was kind of this proto-Silicon Valley kind of guy because he had that kind of Silicon Valley ethos decades before the formation of Silicon Valley – and the other thing that I think is worth pointing out from his background is, I mean, he grew up at a time of this terrible racial prejudice, and it wasn't just against African Americans. It was also against Asian Americans. I mean, this was a yeah. time when we excluded Chinese immigrants, and when, in, especially in California, there was horrible prejudice against Asian Americans. But, you know, Lansdale never was infected with that kind of prejudice. He always saw Asians as, as, as being fully equal uh, to, to Americans or to anybody else. And that was in, in one of the keys to his success, that when he went to the Philippines in 1945 and then when he, when he went to South Vietnam in 1954, he didn't think that he was surrounded by lesser beings. He thought that he was meeting these wonderful people who became his friends and colleagues and comrades, and he treated them in this kind of equal fashion that was very rare in those days uh, for Westerners to do. I think he genuinely liked them, which he genu- is a- yes.
1: He treated pretty good them as quality human to have, frankly, yeah. when you're dealing with folks yes. uh, you're, you yeah. are trying to assist. Yeah.
2: And, uh, I mean, he, I think it's fair you, to say you, that he made, you know, he really weaponized empathy. He yeah. made empathy and emotional intelligence yep. a weapon of war. And
1: you can't fake that. So he, again, he goes to UCLA, ROTC.
2: And goes into advertising. I mean, yep. he hoped to be a, a New Yorker cartoonist or playwright and moved to New York in the height of the Great Depression. It didn't work out. Uh, he, did, he did meet uh, Helen, the, the woman that he would marry, but then he got into advertising, moved back to California, and had a successful ad career uh, going, selling various products in San Francisco when the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor happened, December seventh, 1941. And he, he was eager to enlist, even though by that point he was in his late 30s. Uh, couldn't quite get into the Army right away, so he got into OSS, the uh, Civilian Intelligence Agency, and worked for the OSS in the United States. in Which Britain. was part of the Defense Department at the time. Ostensibly,
1: yes. Ostensibly. He yeah. was the forerunner of the CIA. Yeah, exactly. Uh, First Civilian Intelligence headed, Agency and then... Headed by Wild Bill Donovan. Wild Bill Donovan, I think yes. Had two stars or something right. that they pinned on his shoulders. Yes. So that, a very highly decorated yes. World Great War Yes, Great
2: character. And, yeah. and Lansdale shared some characteristics with Wild Bill Donovan because they mm-hmm. were both inveterate mavericks who were constantly at war with whatever bureaucracy they happened to be in. And in the end, for both of them, I would say it was ultimately
1: self-defeating, but it was a sign that they were just born rebels. We'll come back to that, by yeah. the way. Or Lansdale's inability really to enjoy bureaucratic infighting and to prevail in it as yes. well. Uh, yes. And this does have an influence. Um, he, so he can't get in the army. He goes into OSS, but he doesn't deploy. You no, know, he, 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 stays, he stays in the U.S., and he yep. interviews travelers to gain information
2: about places where Allied troops are going to be landing. He's, he's quite successful. Eventually, during the war, he gets into the Army. And just by happenstance, in the fall of 1945, just as the war is ending, he gets deployed to the Philippines uh, and uh, you know spends the next several years there, eventually transferring to the Air Force mm-hmm. uh, as an intelligence officer, as a public affairs officer. But really, I would say doing a job that really is not in in the normal army chain of command, which was that in some ways he was kind of a goodwill ambassador. He was kind of a cultural affairs ambassador because what he was doing primarily, and this is something that you know, not enough soldiers or, or diplomats or others do when they're deployed abroad, he was really trying to learn about the people that he was surrounded by. And, of course, you know, part of that learning process was the fact that he met this Filipino lady, this war widow named Pat Kelly, with whom he struck up a romance, And she became, in a way, his uh, cultural guide, geographic guide and cultural guide, because there was a budding communist insurgency in the Philippines at the time known as the Hook Rebellion. And she, Pat Kelly, happened to be from the same area in Luzon province where a lot of the the Hooks were from. And so she literally guided him into the areas where the the insurgents were active because he wanted to learn about them. And in the course of these trips, a tremendous romance uh, was struck up and and lifelong romance. And, you know, she became kind of his interlocutor with, with
1: Filipino society. And does become his second wife after Helen passed away. Eventually. I mean, it, Ron, was,
2: it Ron, was a, it was a, it a was decades a, later. it's a fascinating story. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, it, it's one that's not entirely comfortable for the family because, you know, he came back, he asked his wife, Helen, for a divorce. She refused. They stayed married. He continued seeing Pat for a number of years, eventually they broke off, and eventually, towards the end of his life, he and Helen, I think, reconciled and and had some happy years together, but finally, at the end of the day, uh, Helen died in uh, 1972, and then within a year, uh, Pat Kelly, who by then was a retired grandmother but had had never married. She was a war widow and came to the United States and and married Ed and uh, became a second wife, and then they lived, you know, basically happily ever after until uh, his own uh, demise in 1987.
1: He becomes a pivotal figure in in, in uh, the Philippines. Yes. Uh, does two tours there yes. again. The total years would be what?
2: It was about uh, seven, seven years ish. or so. Yeah, wow. so a long I mean, time. By the
1: way, think about the the number of years he spent quote deployed. Yeah uh, as we think about as deployments are these No, I think this
2: was, I mean, you know, I don't want to speak for, for his son Mm -hmm. here, but I think this, I mean, there was an element of hardship for the family because he was deployed for much of their childhood. And I think it's really to the credit of Helen, Ed's, Ed's mother, that she really, like a lot of military wives really held the family together and she had to be basically a single parent and,
1: and she really raised the kids, I think pretty well as, as you can see here. Yeah, to be a colonel in the Air Force, yeah, not bad. Exactly. Now, by the way, his father, of course, retires with two stars. I note this because I don't know how in the world this ever happens. Yeah. A guy who's a non aviator never has a line Air Force assignment that I yep. can detect in your book,
2: yeah. uh, and, and basically never,
1: never fired a gun in anger, basically. Um, so those were the days, uh, and, and it
2: is interesting. The though, most that, unusual, the most unusual general, well probably they, in U.S. military history. Actually, I would the say. most
1: unusual is the guy who rose to be three stars deputy director of the CIA, one of the great linguists of all times. He basically was always the translator for the president of the United States with France, with Italy, with Russia, with a whole bunch of different languages. Uh, And he was an infantry officer who never commanded above platoon level. So there's one other behind him. There's a few of these Um, oddballs out there. But they could never happen today. The system would not permit it. Uh, And again, in some ways, I think it was a tribute to the system that you could have someone like uh, Edward Lanzo, because his second tour, his assignment is personal assistance to the Minister of Defense of the Philippines. Um, I'm not aware of, again, any kind of assignment like that these days. And so tell us about that experience, which is really, again, pivotal for the Philippines.
2: Well, that was really the making of the Lansdale legend, because you have to understand what the situation looked like in 1950. There was a fear in Washington that communism was on the march. This was the McCarthy era. This was the time when the Korean War was raging. China had just fallen to the communists. Russia had acquired the nuclear bomb. There was a feeling that that we were losing this battle, especially in Asia. And here was this uh, burgeoning communist insurgency in the Philippines, the Hook Rebellion, that seemed to be on the verge of taking over Manila, which was, of course, a longtime U.S. ally. But at that point, we were so committed in the Korean War, there were just no troops to spare. And there was actually talk about sending multiple army divisions uh, to the Philippines, which is something the Joint Chiefs contemplated. But instead of doing that, what happened was uh, Frank Wisner, who was the operations chief of a, of a top-secret outfit called the Office of Policy Coordination that eventually folded into the CIA, Wisner, instead of sending whole divisions to the Philippines, sent Ed Lansdale and a handful of assistants, and their job was basically to rescue the Philippines from, from communism. And how are these guys going to do that? Well, the way that Ed Lansdale did that was by latching on to this young defense minister, Ramon Magsaysay, because he perceived that Magsaysay was the guy who was going to turn the Philippines around, that he was not corrupt, uh, he was honest, he was effective, he wanted to do the right thing, but he didn't quite know what the right thing was. And essentially, Lansdale befriended him. He became like a brother. They were actually roommates for a while, and together... really under Lansdale's guidance, they developed what you would later call population-centric counterinsurgency. Lansdale convinced Magsaysay, and and Magsaysay didn't need much convincing, to do things like issue orders to the Army to say, don't bombard the barrios, don't use artillery when you're chasing after insurgents because you're just going to alienate the population. Don't steal from the population, act as brothers to the people, and if you do that, if you win the confidence of the people, they will then rat out the insurgents to you. But first you have to win their confidence. And so these are, you know, in in some ways, you know, pretty basic insights today that were codified in your Counterinsurgency field manual, but they were pretty revolutionary ideas in the early 1950s, and Lansdale really pushed them through Mogsai Sai, but you know, he did it in a very unobtrusive fashion so that Mogsai Sai did not feel like he was being dictated to. He felt like he was getting advice from somebody who was like a brother to him, which was a very indirect and very effective way of
1: operating. Hugely fortunate, obviously, to have a partner of the caliber of Mog Sai. Yes. Yeah, but he
2: also I identified Mog, Mog Sai and and cultivated mm-hmm. him and made Very him much so. more successful than he had been uh, hitherto. Yeah, I up mean, to, idea- to and including, you know, really becoming his covert campaign manager to get uh, Moksi Sai mm-hmm. elected president of the Philippines yeah, in 1953. Tell us about that. And tell us what he actually does to get yeah. him elected. Well, I mean, he did everything from camp- posing, composing a campaign song to creating a campaign slogan, Magsaysay is my guy, and Magsaysay became <laughs> known as the guy throughout the Philippines. Uh, and he did all sorts of things, including uh, creating Filipino civic organizations to prevent the other party from stealing the election because there was a lot of electoral fraud and working with journalists to place favorable profiles of ISIS, I mean, pretty much everything that you would expect a campaign manager to do, he was doing, even though he happened to be on the CIA payroll. And, uh, you know, this was controversial at the time. Even at the time, this was controversial within the agency, within the State Department, within the U.S. government, because a lot of people weren't sure that CIA officers should be getting this involved in the politics of another country. But, you know, Lansdale's retort was very interesting because he said, you know, he had read Mao Zedong. He was one of the first Americans to read Mao's writing. And he understood that, that the way that the communists acquired power was was uh, sure through the barrel of a gun, but ultimately it was political. They had a political strategy to win support. And, and what Lansdale said is you can't just fight the, the communists militarily. You have to fight them politically. You have to offer them a better alternative. And in the Philippines... The, the hook slogan was uh, bombs, not ballots, because elections were so crooked and rigged that nobody had any confidence in the outcome of an election. And Lansdale turned that around because he delivered fair elections. He prevented election fraud. And he helped Sai who was— Other very than the fraud that he, of course, financed. Well, he didn't—it course... wasn't fraud. I mean, it was—I think I would say it was advertising, basically. Yeah, okay. It was, <laughs> but, I mean, he wasn't—he wasn't stuffing ballot boxes. And no, Sai was genuinely yeah. popular. Yeah, yeah, and as right a result of Sai's victory, that basically defeated the Hook Rebellion because he turned the slogan around, and now the slogan became ballots— not bullets, because the people realized they could affect political change at the ballot box. They no longer had to fight with the gun. And that really took all the air
1: out of the Hook Rebellion. I mean, this is, again, so dramatically familiar, frankly, to what it is that we tried to do during the surge. I've told this audience before the surge that mattered most was the surge of ideas, not the surge of forces. And it was all of these ideas. And I think I just want to dwell on these a bit, being courteous and polite to the population within which you're you 're engaging the enemy um, when it becomes lethal, avoiding indiscriminate violence, as you mentioned, hated airborne strikes because they killed civilians, and they do by the way. Um, he gave Filipino soldiers cheap cameras to photograph the enemy they'd just killed in in part just to get actual accurate reporting. Right. So you wouldn't have these inflated body counts. Exactly right. Right. You know, we used to call that Iraqi math or Afghan math at times um, and hated the mentality of body counts. Think about how that becomes the metric of Vietnam and how different that was. uh, The statistical reductions of war uh, that became so familiar uh, again during Vietnam. So together, uh, again, they develop what as you mentioned, now would be termed population-centric counterinsurgency, uh, with a very modest U.S. commitment. At the end of the day, how many troops were actually on the ground in the Philippines, would you say? I mean, maybe a few dozen. I mean, the core of it was basically Lansdale and maybe 10 assistants. That was it. Keeping in mind, again, that you don't always get the luck to have Magsaysay. Absolutely. Kinds of individuals. Right. And I right. certainly. But they also made some that. of their own luck by but cultivating him and pushing him forward. You do indeed. Yeah. Um, Prime Minister Maliki in Iraq was not the easiest of individuals with whom to work, but by God, yeah. we did together. Right. Uh, and with Ryan Crocker and others, drive violence down by 85% and so forth. Um, so again, a very, very uh, important achievement here. Uh, and he gets elected, he's the president. Uh, sadly, for only a few years.
2: Yes, he dies in a tragic airplane crash, and that was one of the great tragedies of Filipino history because after he was gone, it was back to the same old corruption and eventually the
1: rise of Marcos and his de-
2: despotism. Yeah,
1: and again, tragically, flies into a mountain. And by the way, the aircraft is being piloted by the chief of staff of the Air Force, right. as I recall, yeah. uh, a guy who knew fighters really well, but this yeah. was not a fighter. This yeah. was a transport plane. Um, Of course, we talked about Pat Kelly here and what transpired there. So now how does he end up over in Vietnam? Well,
2: he had this signal success in the Philippines where he, in fact, basically masterminded this victory against the Hook Rebellion. And so he was obviously the flavor of the month in the Eisenhower administration. Alan Dulles became a great champion. Alan Dulles, the CIA director, loved these swashbuckling covert operatives like Kim Roosevelt in Iran, who masterminded the overthrow of Mossadegh, or Ed Lansdale in the Philippines, who masterminded the election of Ramon Magsaysay. And so then in 1954, you have the situation where the French are being defeated at Dien Bien Phu. There's a Geneva conference held to divide Vietnam into North and South Vietnam with the North under communist control. And the question was, how would you have a viable non-communist state in South Vietnam? And, you know, the basically the the consensus within the Eisenhower administration was, okay. we don't want to send a lot of American troops. So let's send Ed Lansdale and let's have Ed Lansdale do in Vietnam what he did in the Philippines. And those were literally
1: his marching orders from Alan Dulles. Having gone over there first with Iron Mike. uh, Yes. Yeah. He had visited there in 53. He'd he'd seen the French war
2: effort and he had been disgusted by it because, you know, he said that you can't have these white faces trying to win a war in Vietnam, that the French. Uh, as long as they were fighting to control the country for themselves, would never prevail because they would never defeat Vietnamese nationalism. And that was his he, – he knew that the French war effort was
1: doomed. So he ultimately does somewhere, again, around six or seven years uh, in Vietnam, uh, the, this first tour in the mid-50s uh, then comes home yep. and then goes back some three or four years, five years later. Yep. But let's talk about that first tour and the strategy and tactics that he encouraged um, – his relationship with the ambassador and the American diplomats and so forth at that time?
2: Well, just as he had latched on in the Philippines to Ramon Magsai Sai in, in, in South Vietnam, he latched on to Ngo Dinh who was newly appointed prime minister. And at that point, in the summer of 1954, few people thought that Ziem would last nine weeks, much less nine years, because he faced this huge array of adversaries, not only the communists but also these uh, local religious sects, uh, such as the the Kau Dai and the Wahao, who had tens of thousands of armed men between them and had the support of the French, nobody thought that that uh, that CM would last long. And among his critics was the U.S. ambassador, a four-star general named Lightning Joe Collins, who was a personal friend of, of President Eisenhower. Uh, but you know Lansdale, who was a mere colonel working for the CIA, was not afraid to stand up to this four-star general. And when in a meeting, you know Lightning Joe Collins said that he wanted to reduce the size of the South Vietnamese army that we were helping to support. Lansdale thought this was the dumbest idea imaginable because he said, you know, you needed a large army to pacify the countryside as the Viet Minh, the communist fighters are pulling out. You needed somebody to have some kind of administrative governance in those areas. And there was no civilian capacity, so it had to be the military. But if, and you had to absorb all these sect armies. So you needed a larger army for, for governance purposes, not a smaller one. And he thought that, you know, Collins didn't understand what what was actually going on, and you know, lightning Joe Collins, who was kind of a stereotypical
1: starchy four-star general, not like not, you, not a man, of, uh, not a man of small ego, I might not add. a man Either of skin, small ego. He fought successfully uh, in Europe, yes, all the way up to corps commander. Yeah. Then he transfers to the Pacific. Yes. he was the only U.S. Uh, general who only. fought in both in both theaters. And Europe. then ultimately takes over in Korea after Ridgway. Yeah. Uh, This was was again, a former Army Chief of Staff Staff when that was when they only had. And he was a personal friend of President Eisenhower.
2: And so, you know, he basically tried to shut Lansdale down and said, you know, I'm here as the personal representative of the American president. And my decision is final. And then Lansdale gets up and says, well, sir, I'm here as the personal representative of the American people. And I think if the American people heard what you were saying, they would disagree with you. And then he walked out of the room. And amazingly enough, he didn't get fired and for, for that stunt. And this is
1: my point. He makes yeah. it to two stars. I yes. mean, this is really quite remarkable. Yeah. Again, not would not ever happen today. Um, in the mid-50s, he um, I was not the easiest of subordinates at times, but I made sure I had the president in my corner when I was. Um, mid-50s, he writes an actual counterinsurgency strategy for Vietnam. Just characterize that for Yeah, a absolutely. Briefie.
2: Where... He, because, you know, you have all these areas that are being vacated by the Viet Minh, and, and, and Ed Lansdale writes, he's, he's the first uh, counterinsurgency chief in South Vietnam. He writes the strategy for how the Vietnamese army is going to go in there and control those areas. And basically, a lot of it had to do with civic action, which was a term that he probably invented. Uh, and it had to do with winning over the people. I mean, he did things, for example, like creating something called Operation Brotherhood, which was this ostensibly independent organization in reality don't tell anybody, funded by the CIA, but this ostensibly independent organization that brought over Filipino doctors and nurses to provide medical care in these newly liberated areas to win over the people. You know, this is kind of counterinsurgency 101, something that the Special Operations Forces do all the time today, but he was pioneering these kinds of efforts to win over the population and to to win their support for the ZM regime. And then, you know, he pushed ZM to go out among the people, uh, who normally a very reclusive uh, ruler, he he really tried to push for more uh, democracy and more representative government in order to create a more legitimate and stable state in in South in Saigon.
1: Really, the antithesis of what ultimately becomes the U.S. effort in Vietnam. Absolutely, with huge battles, big forces. Right. It wasn't firepower. It wasn't interdiction. Right. None fires, of that stuff. As you mentioned, free right. fire zones and all the rest of that. Right which proved to be really quite disastrous uh, in its effects. So he, he, he writes this, he promotes this, uh, he supports ZM. Yep. This is his version now of, yes. of his right. partner in the Philippines, not quite of the same level, but again, right. not without talent. Um, he comes back to Washington. And he briefs the newly installed Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. Can you describe this? This is quite an interesting moment. Yeah,
2: well, this was a true clash of cultures that occurred with Robert McNamara, you know, who is the uh, Harvard Business School graduate, a- accounting background, former CEO of the Ford Motor Company, who believed that you could you know, reduce all the problems of war and peace to mathematical equations. And you know, Ed Lansdale walks into his office in 1961 and puts down this load of these dirty, Uh, Weapons, You know, very basic, you know, uh, uh, spears and swords and and rusty muskets caked with blood and mud and says and and puts them down on, on McNamara's desk and says, you know, Mr. Secretary, you need to understand that these are the people we're fighting and they're fighting with these very primitive weapons. They wear pajamas. They don't look like the kind of soldiers you would recognize. And they're facing a, a, a South Vietnamese army, which is equipped by us, looks just like us, has the same equipment. But you know what? These fighters, these ragtag guerrilla fighters are actually licking uh, the, the soldiers that we're arming. And you need to understand why. You need to understand that they have this powerful idea behind them and that they're not going to be defeated simply by American firepower. Well, wow, you, know, you know, McNamara takes one look at him, and, and his immediate assessment is, this guy's an idiot, and why is he cluttering up my desk? Get all this stuff out of here. Get out of here. We know what we're doing. Thank you very much. And, of course, in hindsight, we know perfectly well that McNamara did not
1: know what he was doing. As he later confessed, of course. Yeah. Um, he's now sort of shunted into this strange uh, operation where he's uh, this, this anti-Castro mission that he's well, given. This, Tell in us some ways, a bit about that, yeah, I mean, It's so tragic, actually, in yes. the long run, because of the effect it has right. on the regard for him. And then during that time, of course, the M is overthrown. Right.
2: Well, by the early 60s, Lansdale had an outsized reputation because he was associated with the protagonist and the quiet American, as well as one of the main characters in The Ugly American. And although he was ostensibly a secret agent, he was one of the least secretive secret agents ever. I mean, he was quite famous by that point. He was kind of the known by some as the American T. Lawrence and by others as the American James Bond. And the Kennedys were initially very smitten by him. And so after the failure of the Bay of Pigs, an operation he had opposed... They were still determined to get rid of Castro, and they said, okay, well, we need an outsider, somebody with independent ideas to take over this operation. Let's get Ed Lansdale. I mean, they never, never occurred to them to say, you know, what does Ed Lansdale know about Cuba? Why is, why is a guy who's a specialist in, in Southeast Asia being used in this kind of operation? But basically, they, they put him in charge of what became known as Operation Mongoose, this mm-hmm. task force, to get rid of Castro yep. uh, in 1962, in and it was, it was a failure. It didn't achieve the results it wanted because, you know, Lansdale basically told them if you want to get rid of Castro, you're going to have to use American military force. They didn't want to do that. They wanted some kind of quick, magical solution. And so all these kinds of crazy ideas came up, including one that Lansdale himself authored. You know, of having a, a submarine surface off the coast of Cuba and fire star shells in the air and, and, and combine that with the rumor campaign that the second coming of Christ was nigh and that, you know, you had to get rid of that God was displeased with Fidel Castro. He's not making this up, by no, this, the way. No, this actually happened. But I mean, it's not half as crazy as some of the ideas that, you know, CIA folks had, like, you know, feeding Castro drugs that would make his beard fall out because the beard was supposedly the source of his power. I mean, there were, this was, there were basically, there were all sorts of crazy ideas circulating at the time because the Kennedys, and in particular Bobby Kennedy, yeah. was hammering on him saying, I want action. We need action. We need to get rid of him. And so this was the result. It basically, to make a long story short, Operation Mongoose failed. Uh, the only good thing that it did was it did produce the intelligence, which allowed us to find out that the Soviets were putting nuclear missiles into Cuba. But after the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was disbanded, and Lansdale was shunted aside uh, he was basically left vulnerable to his uh, bureaucratic adversaries like Robert McNamara. And by the end of 1963, he was uh, retired. And this was really a tragedy because this was the height of the crisis in South Vietnam, the crisis between ZM and, and Kennedy, which led to ZM's overthrow with all the tragic consequences that we discussed earlier. And in hindsight, a lot of people like Walt Rostow who was Lyndon Johnson's national security advisor, later said the only way this crisis could have been averted is if Ed Lansdale had been sent to Saigon to work with CM and to move him in a more consensual direction and to guide him as he had guided him in the 1950s. And to push of aside to, his conspiratorial brother. Right. No denu knew, to yeah. push no denu knew aside. But it never happened because there was too much bureaucratic opposition to Lansdale. He had made too many bureaucratic enemies and they blocked his return, and thus the one man who might conceivably have averted this dire crisis was sidelined and retired.
1: Although he goes back. He's sent back, as you noted, in 1965, does three more years. Yes. Uh, Tell us a bit about how his team was regarded by this point by other Americans. Even Henry Kissinger had comments about him.
2: Yeah, well, this was a tremendously frustrating period. He went back in 65 because he wanted to help, but he went to work for Henry Cabot Lodge, who was the very man— during an earlier stint as ambassador, who had masterminded the coup that overthrew and killed his friend, Nodin Ziem. So it was not a a positive relationship from the start. And basically, in the 65 to 68 period, when Lansdale was there, he was really sidelined because, you know, the big green machine really took over the war, Westmoreland, and, uh, you know, the offensive-minded military. And Westmoreland genuinely thought, that he could kill the Viet Cong faster than they could be replaced, that he would reach a crossover point, so-called, uh, where he was eliminating the Viet Cong faster than they could be than they could be replaced, and you know, Lansdale understood this was hubris. He tried to put up a brave front in public, but in private, in the letters that I've read. He was in despair because he understood that the war was being lost and, and he thought it was a tragedy that these poor Vietnamese rice farmers who were in the middle of this war, who were not fighting but were simply caught in the middle, they were getting eradicated and pulverized by American artillery and air power because they were mistaken for the Viet Cong or they happened to be near the Viet Cong. And he said, you know, you can't win a war this way. You're not going to win by by killing the people on your own side. But Westmoreland and, and Johnson the others ignored him. His greatest champion, by the way, was Hubert Humphrey, who was vice president, mm. uh, who was well-intentioned. But Hubert Humphrey, as anybody who knows the history of the Johnson administration knows, Hubert Humphrey had no impact. He was completely sidelined by Lyndon Johnson. And so the big difference was in the 50s, you know, Lansdale had these powerful champions like the Dulles brothers who really ran American foreign policy who allowed him to override the local bureaucracy, whereas in the 60s, his champion was Hubert Humphrey, who was as powerless as he was. And as a result of that, he had no power to affect what the American war machine was doing in, in, in Vietnam. And, and you know, he left after the Tet Offensive, a few months after the Tet Offensive, very dejected, demoralized, and defeated because he understood that contrary to what the generals were saying, the Tet Offensive was not this great victory, even though we killed a lot more of the enemy than they killed of our troops, but it was a huge uh, psychological blow to South Vietnam and to the United States. And Lansdale understood that. He understood uh, that the war was being lost. And he felt, he just felt horrible because he, he thought that he had some good ideas that could have helped us to, to do better. But he had been,
1: he had lost this bureaucratic battle. So the tragedy of Lansdale as well as the tragedy of Vietnam. Yes. One of the questions uh, from the audience here it talks about the Tet Offensive. Uh, of course, this is. It's preceded by this massive buildup. We're up to over 500,000 uh, troops on the ground, seemingly doing well. Uh, Light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. How does, with all of our intelligence on the ground, how did we miss the signs of the offensive coming?
2: Well, there were certainly signs, but, you know, it's kind of like the attack on Pearl Harbor. You can see them in hindsight, but at the time, there's a lot of white noise. And, you know, uh, uh, for example, there, there, the widespread view within the military command was that these indications of the Tet Offensive were just a ruse to draw American forces away from Khe San, which was this isolated garrison that was being attacked by uh, North Vietnamese troops at that time. So, But, I mean, this was... I mean, you can, you, can, you can parse the details of how we missed the Tet Offensive, but the larger story, I think, is that we didn't really understand the society in which we were fighting. We didn't really understand it at a cultural level, and Lansdale was trying to help people to understand that. I mean, he actually did things. He was actually in some ways kind of a, became more of an anthropologist than a general because he would do things like compile Vietnamese folk songs and write studies of Vietnamese folk songs, and then he would write studies of South Vietnamese political parties and trying to map the political dynamics of South Vietnam. That's what really interested him because he said that's what we need to understand. We need to understand the society that we're operating in. But, of course, for people like Westmoreland, all of that was irrelevant because all that mattered was, you know, uh, putting
1: uh, warheads on foreheads, basically. Yeah. You know, by the way, one of the big three strategic lessons that I've said that we should learn from our experiences in Iraq in particular is that you really should understand a country before you invade it. Uh, And we did not, frankly, sufficiently. We came with that understanding ultimately over time, as many of us did repetitive tours. But we should have known that going in. Um, Again, let's get to some of the questions uh, here from uh, the floor and and also some others. Um, I... I wanted to ask, you've read H.R. McMaster's book, I'm sure, on the performance of senior U.S. military and political leaders during Vietnam, The Big Idea, which is captured in his title, Dereliction of Duty, his assessment. Right. How would you characterize um, your assessment of them? Is it the same as his, would you say? Is it different? Uh, how would you characterize his and yours? Well, first it'll be of course it'll be interesting
2: to see what H.R. What McMaster thinks about the proper role of military officers in giving advice to a president based on his on his current job as national security advisor. He has a rather different perspective, I think, than he had when he was a young Army officer and PhD student and wrote that book. But I think it was a good book. Uh, it was a scathing indictment of the Joint Chiefs. I would dissent from some of his views because basically the the, the You know, part of uh, HR's thesis there was that that Lyndon Johnson should have listened to the Joint Chiefs. But, in fact, if you look at what the Joint Chiefs were saying, they had a relentlessly conventional outlook. They thought, basically, the only problem with the war was there was not enough firepower. Even though we actually dropped more bombs on Vietnam than we had during World War II, they wanted more. They wanted more conventional forces, more, more, more. And, you know, I think... Lyndon Johnson was, skept- was right to be skeptical that simply applying more conventional firepower was going to uh, achieve a better end state. And Ed Lansdale had a very different perspective. He was one of those, like, uh, like John Paul Vann and a few others, who were neither hawk nor dove, because they, d- they weren't doves in the sense that they didn't want to abandon South Vietnam. They wanted to help South Vietnam. But at the same time, they thought the way we were going about it was the wrong way, and they thought the way that the military establishment was recommending we go about the war was the
1: wrong approach. Question here. Generals are often accused of refighting the last war. Uh, how did the experience of the Korean War affect and influence American leadership and specifically Lansdale in the Vietnam War? Well, it didn't have any real impact on
2: Lansdale because he didn't fight in, in Korea. But it's, the, the Korean War certainly had an impact. World War II followed by the Korean War because you know pretty much all the generals that we sent to command in Vietnam from the 1950s onward were veterans of World War II and in many cases of the Korean War none of them really had any experience fighting insurgents certainly general william Westmoreland did not they all brought this relentlessly conventional mindset and you know in, in korea until you get to abrams who finally but yeah, i mean abrams tonight. yeah i mean abrams i think is, is is the first guy who's smart enough to understand that doing more of the same is not going to achieve better results but certainly you know by that time by that point i think by the time abrams was a Uh, Creighton Abrams was appointed in 1968. It was really too late because we had lost public support for the war. But, you know, we we basically, because we had all these generals with World War II and Korean experience, we basically designed the South Vietnamese Army to fight a conventional adversary. And Lansdale was warning against this in the 1950s. He was saying, no, we can't create this mirror image force because we're not going to be fighting, you know, North Vietnamese tanks. We're going to be fighting." Communist insurgents. And he tried to mold the the Vietnamese army to be more of a counterinsurgency force, light infantry and civic action, but he was overruled. And that was, you know, the decision was made to provide them heavy weaponry and basically create this small scale version of the U.S. Army, which was not the appropriate force for the kind of uh, conflict they faced at that point.
1: Here's another wonderful question. Uh, I often pondered this myself. How does someone who thinks outside the box survive? let alone succeed in a bureaucracy that often does not appreciate such thinking.
2: Well, I, you know, you may be better placed to answer that than I am because you're a – I mean, uh, you know, for those who don't, under, uh, who don't know the U.S. Army culture, I mean, the fact that General Petraeus is a, is a Ph.D. from Princeton is, is pretty damn rare. There's not a lot of four-star generals who are PhDs. I was
1: told I was committing professional suicide when I exactly. went to Princeton, actually.
2: And you went on your own path. And, and quite frankly, if I look at your career, I would say – Uh, you would not have risen to the top of four-star command were it not for the extremely dire situation that we found ourselves in in Iraq in 2006, 2007, because things at that point were getting desperate enough that they were ready to kind of throw out the conventional army playbook and to try a new approach with somebody who had different ideas, and of course that was you. Uh, You know, I think Lansdale certainly did not rise to four-star rank, and he was not as successful in navigating the bureaucratic currents as you were. I mean, as you mentioned, he did pretty well, all things considered, retiring as a two star. But, you know, I think one of his Achilles' heels was that uh, while he was very adept at winning over foreign leaders, he was not so adept at winning over his own leaders. And, you know, one of his subordinates who recently died, a great hero of World War II, uh, retired General Sam Wilson, yeah. uh, former director of the DIA. And- With you, whom you apparently had long Yeah, I had fascinating yeah. conversations that he was a veteran of Merrill's Marauders. Yep. He rose to three-star rank, and he worked for Lansdale, and he had tremendous admiration for Lansdale, but he said, you know, Lansdale's undoing basically was that he treated the bureaucracy as an enemy, and in so doing, he made it one.
1: By the way, in part to answer that last question as well about how do you Survive uh, is a bit of an out-of-the-box thinker. I think, actually, leaders in the organization have to... I used to say this, we must preserve and protect the iconoclasts. You have to take care of them. You have to promote them. Uh, it's very publicly known. It was... Some came out in the press that, you know, I went back and sat on... Only one promotion board in my entire life. It happened to be when I was commanding the surge, which is not normally the position from which you're selected to. But it was Secretary Gates. uh, And when he asked me to do that, I originally said, are you crazy? And then he said, think about it for a second. And I did. And frankly, this was H.R. McMaster had been passed over twice for Brigadier General. Uh, I was sent back. No one ever said that to me. uh, But it was pretty clear to me that we needed to ensure that he was going to be on that list. I was the junior four-star in the Army, but was made the president of the board, even though there was a senior guy there, brought Stan McChrystal back, packed this. Uh, and it was a very interesting process. But in a sense, we were making sure that someone who thought outside the box uh, was indeed given a chance to continue to serve. Uh, and I had comments with Gates the other day about the success of that strategy, noting the position that HR is in in now. Um, He had his own memoir in the midst of wars, came out in 1972, um, sort of pulled punches in it. What's your assessment of that?
2: I mean, it was deliberately opaque. He did not want to be uh, very forthcoming in this memoir, in part for personal reasons, because his wife, Helen, was, was still alive at that time, so he didn't want to write about his passionate relationship with Pat Kelly. But he also wanted to pull punches and not reveal how much he had done in the Philippines and Vietnam, because he wanted Filipinos and Vietnamese to take credit for the things that he had done. He didn't want to make it seem like he, he, here was this big white man who was manipulating all of these Asians. He wanted to give them, put them forward yeah. as, as representatives of their society. And at that point, I mean, kind of interesting because by that point, you already had the release of the Pentagon Papers, and Dan Ellsberg was actually a protege of Ed Lansdale's in Vietnam. Uh, but when Dan Ellsberg – by the way, I should add, if you've seen the post – The very first line spoken in that movie when Dan Ellsberg is is out in in the boonies in, in, in Vietnam... Uh, toting a submachine gun with the Marines and, and one Marine says to another, who's the long hair? And the answer is, that's Ellsberg. He works for Lansdale at the embassy, which is true. He worked for Lansdale at the embassy. But then, La- you know, when Ellsberg revealed...
1: Worshipped worship Lansdale. Worship, and
2: still yes. does. I mean, I talked yeah. to Dan Ellsberg and he says, yeah. I love that man and I still love him. He, he revered Lansdale. He thought he was a real font of wisdom. But then when, La- when Ellsberg revealed the Pentagon Papers, that was a very painful episode for Lansdale because... Among the papers that were revealed were operational reports that Lansdale himself had written for the CIA, and they revealed things like, for example, the fact that Operation Brotherhood was not a spontaneous Filipino civic organization; it was actually an organization that was created and funded by Ed Lansdale of the CIA, and that exposed some of his Filipino friends to danger and retribution. So, you know, this added to, uh, you know, some of the agony that he felt at the end of his life, but. Kind of interesting guy. He was, he was such an honorable man, or, or perhaps so quixotic, that even after the revelations of the Pentagon Papers, he refused to admit that he worked for the CIA. And so when this, when this you know, uh, when this memoir came out, it was basically laughed at by critics who knew that he was not telling the truth, but he felt like he had taken an oath to protect and preserve the secrets of the CIA, and that he was not going
1: to break that oath even then. I want to, I can sense that the uh president of this great organization is about to come up on the stage. Um, and before she does that, I really want to get to what you think we should take from your book for contemporary times. You talk, there's three, three words, uh, and I think they're really quite brilliant distillations uh, of what Lansdale experienced and, frankly, what many of others of us have experienced with you out there uh, helping us from time to time. It's learn, like, and listen.
2: That's, to me, the distillation of the Lansdale methodology. I mean, so many Americans, you know, go into a foreign country that we don't know and don't understand. You have envoys from Washington coming in and saying, here's the way you do it. Here's our non-negotiable demands. And if you don't do it, something bad is going to happen. And that, you know, right now, for example, we're cutting aid to Pakistan, just as a random example. Uh, But uh, that wasn't the Lansdale approach at all. His His methodology first learn, go to this country and understand the people. Go out on the countryside, talk to them, understand their culture, understand what they're all about, understand their myths, understand their aspirations, learn what they're all about as people. Like them, like, you know, identify people that you like and cultivate them and become friends with them. Don't lecture to them you know, really learn to like them. And the final thing is to listen. And this is, in many ways, the secret sauce of the Lansdale method, which is that he would listen to his interlocutors instead of lecturing to them. And this was not always easy to do because somebody like No Den Ziem became notorious for yes. hours-long monologues yes. that drove ordinary Americans to distraction. They were like, you know, trying to strangle themselves or get out of his office or somehow in the agony of listening to Ziem drone on and on and on. But Ed Lansdale, who had a very strong bladder, I think, among other things, would sit there would sit there for hour after hour listening to ZM drone on. And then when he was done, he would say, oh, that's fascinating. That's very interesting, Mr. President. If I understand what you're saying, it's X, Y, and Z. And then what he would do is he would very subtly rephrase what his interlocutor was saying to him to get across his own ideas as if they were ZM's ideas. And this is a very subtle yet very effective method of operating. And that's really what – it's just. It, it sounds very simple. It's, it's very basic, but very few American envoys or advisors employ that Lansdale methodology. And I think if they did, if they learned from him, I think they would be much more effective.
1: I really couldn't agree more. And I'd like to think that we learned the same uh, over our years in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and that we have continued to, to learn those. I, let me just end, if I could, um, as I see again, Louise getting the microphone. I truly want to congratulate you on an extraordinary book Thank you, sir. Uh, about an extraordinary American <laughs> Uh, a book that establishes you more than ever as an extraordinary historian, thinker, and writer. Uh, this is, as I've mentioned several times, a monumental achievement. Um, you quote uh, Edward Lansdale's eulogist and CIA disciple, Rupe Phillips, uh, who concluded his remarks at Lansdale's burial ceremony in Arlington by saying, we shall not see his like again, but his ideas shall never die. And I honestly think, Max, with your book, that you make that latter observation, that his ideas shall never die, much more likely to be true than it previously was. Well done, and congratulations. Thank you that. very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory. Or... Visit us at nyhistory.org.